from the very uh, beginning, the church has been a movement, people movement. See, church didn't begin as an institution. It, it didn't begin uh, with a liturgy. There was no calendar of a church year. And what is that anyway? Why is there a church year calendar that's somehow different than calendar for, for some other kind of year? It didn't begin with traditions. In the beginning of the church, there were no Bibles, there were no bands, there were no banners, there were no buildings, there's nothing else that starts with B. There weren't any facilities, there was no staff, there was no hierarchy. From the very beginning, the church was a movement, a movement built around a very simple idea. You see, the church was launched from a historical event. Now, nowadays, one that we tend to just kind of focus on at one time of the year, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was what galvanized and energized those first believers. The fact that Jesus was who He claimed to be. The, the, the resurrection and the eyewitnesses of those, uh, the eyewitness testimony of those earliest believers was what launched the local church. You know, almost to a man, all of the disciples but one were executed, tortured because of their proclamation of that message. And the one that wasn't was shipped off to an island by himself where he died of old age with nobody, no other people around him. Why would they do that? Because they were witnesses to a true, real, historical event. Today we're beginning a new series of messages we're calling Just Church. In the last few years, we've, we've started the new year with a series of messages focusing on our purpose and, and our mission as a local church in this community. This year, I wanted to take us back to the bare wood. I mean, just strip off everything that we've laden on what it means to be church and just get back to the, to, to the simple early days of the church to see what their simple mission was, to, to, to hear and, and see how they viewed their simple purpose and let that inform who we are and what we do and why we do what we do. Just strip it right back down to the bare wood. See, I, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word church. I, I don't know what emotion you feel, and for a lot of us it is an emotional kind of response that we have to the, to the word church, but, but I'll tell you what I do know. I do know that it's probably a far cry from what the people in the first century thought of and what they felt when they heard the word church. So my goal is for us to, to rethink church, to rethink our thinking about church, maybe redefine in our hearts and in our vision and in our actions what it is the church is all about. Because at the end of the day, the church began as a movement. The church began as a movement, and it's still moving. A wise person once told me, movements move. The church began as a movement. Now, we're going to have to get a little academic. A lot of times, the, the first message in a series kind of lays some groundwork, and we're kind of wide-ranging. We have to set some foundation, and, and we're going to do that, but I think it'll be helpful to us. Uh, eventually to understand what it is that we want to understand here. In the Greek New Testament, and that was the language that the New Testament was originally written in, 
The word that's translated church in our English Bibles is ecclesia. Now raise your hand if you've heard that word before, ecclesia. And not if you were here in the first service. I mean, that's cheating. Okay. You've heard it. And so uh, if you've heard it, maybe you know that the word literally means called out. Ek in, in Greek means out. It's a preposition meaning out. Uh, is uh, means to be called. And so it literally means to be called out. And it's used to refer to a gathering of people, to an assembly of people. That's how it's used 114 times in the New Testament, an assembly or a gathering or a congregation of people. Now, in just a moment, we're going to see that, that Jesus launched the church as a gathering of people with one simple idea and a simple mission and a very simple focus. But something awful happened. Something horrible and extremely unfortunate happened. And and, and it happened quickly. Within just a few hundred years after the resurrection of Jesus, there began to be a transition away from the idea of, of church as a movement, as a gathering, an assembly of people, to thinking of church as a location. There began to to be a shift from the simple purpose of the church to church hierarchy and ranking and order. People got away from the simple message about a singular event in history. They got away from that clear purpose and they moved towards something entirely different. And if you know your history especially any church history or medieval history. You know that the church went through a a horrible, extremely embarrassing time when almost everything was wrong with the local church. And it happened because of that transition, because of that shift away from the New Testament understanding of the church. So instead of the church being thought of and understood as an ecclesia, a gathering or assembly of people, another word began to be used. It was a German word, and I don't speak German, but as near as I can tell, it's pronounced Kirche. And and as that word got pulled over into English, and as English began to develop, we developed the spelling and the pronunciation that we use today, church. But now here's the thing. It was a German term that described a holy place a place of religious rituals. didn't even have to be Christian. It could be pagan or any kind of you know, a religious thing under the sun. It was, a, it was a place where people who were adherents of a certain belief system would go to do their rituals. And so in very short order, very quickly after the time of Christ, about 300 years, the idea of, an, of a church, an ecclesia, a, a gathering, a movement, an assembly of people that began to change to church as a place. It became a place you went. It was a location. It was a throwback, really, to the Old Testament idea of the temple. I mean, the temple in Israel was where people had to go to worship because God lived there. When you were growing up, when you were a kid, did you ever have anybody tell you, You couldn't run in church because why? Because why? Because it's God's house. It's God's house. You can't run in God's house. No, it's not. 
This building's not God's house. It's not. What do we call this room right here? Sanctuary. Do, do you remember things we used to wrangle over and people used to get twisted over, like bringing coffee into the sanctuary? Well, why can't you bring it in here? There's nothing that makes this room any different from any other room, any other place. In fact, we could pick up this whole group and go to another room in any building in this community, and it would still be the church. We would still be the assembly, the gathering of people. I'm just going to lay it out here for you, folks. Don't get attached too much about this building because we're going to change it. We're going to use things for different purposes. We're going to, it's not going to look the same. We're going to take some things down, put some new things in, change things up. All that is, all that thinking, all that, 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 that you know, it's God's house and you, you, you can't run in there. Well, listen, you know where God's house is? Right here. If you can't run in God's house, none of us can run anywhere. I pretty much hold to that. It's that, it was that tragic shift in thinking uh, of church as a place, as a location. Getting away from thinking of church as an ecclesia that caused some terrible theology and some terrible practices to begin to take place. And pretty soon, the church was only thought of as being located in a certain building. And whoever controlled the building controlled the church. And whoever controlled the building controlled Scripture. Who could have the Scripture? Who could read it? And whoever controlled the building and whoever controlled the Scripture controlled the people. And whoever controlled the building and the Scripture and controlled the people in some places in the world controlled the government without exception to tragic consequences. I don't know why we want to fool ourselves to thinking it would be different today if the church was in charge of the government. History has shown us over and over again it does not work. And so over time, what began as a people movement taking the truth about, of the gospel about Jesus, people taking that throughout the whole world, instead became a very insider-focused, a very hierarchical, ritual, in some cases pagan, immoral, destructive, unethical movement that had zero connection to what the church started out to be and what God intended the church to be when it was first launched. And I'll tell you something else. This shift in thinking away from the church is, as ecclesia, a gathering, an assembly, a, a movement of people toward the idea of a location resulted in some things that are embarrassing to look back on from a historical standpoint. And we still feel the effects of it today. It is why large numbers of people turn their backs on the local church. But it didn't start that way. 
And quite honestly, it does not have to be that way now. Jesus predicted the coming of the church. There's this, uh, there's this incident in the book of Matthew where Jesus gathers his followers together and, and he asks them a question that, quite frankly, um, we shouldn't ask our friends because we won't like the information that we get. Well, what Jesus asked his followers was this, what's the word on the street about me? What are people saying about me? You know, when, when people are talking about Jesus... What do they say? And his followers began to answer him. Well, some of them think that you're the reincarnation of John the Baptist. Someone else said, there are those who think you're one of the Old Testament prophets, you know, come back from the dead. And then Peter stepped up and he says, I'll tell you who I think you are. I think you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said this, check it out, it's in Matthew 16. Verses 17 and 18, he said, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, my ecclesia, Jesus said. Not my church building, not my location. I will build my ecclesia, my gathering of people, my assembly of people, my movement of people. And then Jesus said, all the powers of hell will not conquer it. The best translation of that is the power of death itself cannot withstand it. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm building my church. And it just doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter if there's persecution. And man, you know, we, we got to get our heads on straight about persecution. Let me tell you that whatever happens in the United States is not persecution compared to the rest of the world. Do we know this? I mean, we think persecution is somebody saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, right? We think persecution is somebody making fun of Tim Tebow. In most countries of the world, persecution means... Um, Losing your job, losing your property, being arrested, being tortured, being killed. Jesus says it doesn't matter if that stuff happens. It doesn't matter if people die. My church is going to continue forever and ever and ever and ever because it's a movement of people with a simple message and a simple purpose. Now, not too long after this, Jesus is crucified. And he raises from the dead and spends about 40 days with his followers after he's risen from the dead. And again, after those 40 days, he gathers them on a hillside outside Jerusalem, calls them to himself, and gives them his final instructions. He's already, he's already told them this truth that, that I am the Messiah, that I'm the Son of the living God, that's going to be the basis of the movement that I'm launching. And then he gathers his people together on that hillside, and here's what happens. First of all, first we get a big clue that his followers still don't get it. It's in Acts chapter 1. In fact, if you want to just turn to Acts, we're going to be there in chapters 1 and 2 for the rest of our time. If you don't have a Bible with you, the verses will be on the screen. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it says, So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? 
They just don't get it yet. They're thinking about a political establishment, right? With Jesus as the, as the king of a nation and themselves obviously as, you know, the second in commands. They weren't thinking about a growing, gathering, multicultural, multi-ethnic movement of people. And so, so Jesus rebukes them a little bit in verse 7. He says, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. They are not for you to know. Now we ought to tattoo that verse on the forehead of every person that's got end times CD. They want you to listen to that. They are not for you to know. But, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. We don't know what they thought, but we know what we would think. Power. That's a good thing. Did you hear that? We're going to get power. Wonder what we're going to do with it. And then Jesus tells them in verse 8 You will be my witnesses. You will be like that person who goes to court to testify about what they've seen and heard, to, to accurately represent what someone said or did. You will be my witnesses and you'll tell people about me everywhere in Jerusalem. And that's where they were. And in Judea, and that was the region they were in. And in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that was just places they didn't like to go. And we don't know what they thought, but I mean, we can put ourselves in their shoes. You're standing there with the man whom Rome crucified, who the religious leaders hate. And there's about a hundred of you, give or take, 100, 120. And he says, hey, here's what's going to happen. You're going to take the message of me. You're going to take my teaching, and you're going to take the fact that you are eyewitnesses to my resurrection. And you're going to take this message all over Jerusalem. And they're looking at each other going, okay, Jerusalem, we can do that. We can do Jerusalem and Judea. Okay. And Samaria. Oh, man. Not Samaria. We don't like to go there. And the rest of the world. <laughs> and no doubt they're looking at each other and they're thinking, the rest of the world? Jesus, time out. Do, do you know how big the world is? Could you imagine asking, asking Jesus that? <laughs> what would he say? No, you don't know how big the world is. I mean, you got this little Roman world mentality, but I'm telling you that this message... This movement, this gathering is going to touch every single part of the world. And that's exactly what happened. That's precisely what happened. This is the most significant prophecy in the Bible. And I'll tell you why. Because you and I are part of the fulfillment of it. And so Jesus ascends up to the Father, this little group of 100, 120 people. They go back to Jerusalem and they begin to meet together and pray together and meet together and pray together and meet together and pray together. And this goes on for about two weeks and then the Jewish celebration of Pentecost comes up and there were people, there were Jewish people and converts to Judaism from all over the world. And the scripture tells us that 
while the, that 100, 120 followers of Jesus were, were meeting and praying together, that the Holy Spirit showed up in their midst in a powerful way, just as Jesus said He would. And the Holy Spirit manifested Himself in such a way that each individual follower of Jesus suddenly found themselves able to speak the languages of the people who had gathered there from all over the world. And they went out in the city and they began to talk to people from all over the world in their language. And the people said, how do you know my language? You're a Galilean. I'm from another part of the world. How can you speak my language? And there was confusion and excitement and conversation. And yes, some people ridiculed. Some people said, well, they must be drunk. But there were other people who said, they, they can't be drunk. They're unschooled, unlearned in my language, and yet they're talking to me in my language. And Peter decides it's time for the very first gospel sermon. And this was the day the church was born. Jesus had predicted it. He described it. It was going to be a gathering of people, an ecclesia. And Peter stands up, stands up somewhere where people can see him, and he begins to preach the very first sermon on the opening day of the church. And he does something very interesting. He takes them back to the Old Testament, to, to a context that the Jews could understand. He begins with something that's familiar to them, and he says, what's happening right now was predicted in the Old Testament. This should not surprise you because God has always said that one day the message that had been given to the Jews would be expanded and would be a message for the entire world. And then he says to them in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him. And don't miss this, as you well know. But God knew what would happen. And his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. Now, don't miss this. Peter's not talking about ancient history. When we talk about the event, uh, talk about Jesus' life, we have to talk about something that happened 2,012 years ago. Peter's talking about something that happened about two months ago. Eight weeks, right? And so when he said Jesus of Nazareth, there were people in that audience, in that group, who would say, oh yeah, I remember him. I was there for that message he preached. Oh yeah, I was, I was there one time um, uh, when he, he healed some people. He healed a friend of mine. Oh yeah, I, 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 I know some of his followers. Yeah, I remember now, it was just a couple months ago, I watched him drag a cross through the middle of town. Yeah, I remember him. This isn't ancient history. This is recent history. Why does that make a difference? Because they couldn't make anything up, right? Because there were people around who knew how things were, who knew what had happened. They couldn't embellish the story or change it. They had to tell it straight. Peter goes on in Acts 2, verse 23 and 24. You nailed him to a cross and killed him, but God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life 
for death could not keep him in its grip. So Peter's just basically preaching the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 32, God raised Jesus from the dead. And we are all witnesses of this. This whole group of 100, 120 of us, we're witnesses. Some of you are witnesses. Some of you saw it happen. We're eyewitnesses of the fact that He came back to life. And it wasn't years ago, it was a few weeks ago. And then in verse 36, Peter says, So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's making it personal. He's pointing his finger at those Jews in Jerusalem and saying, This one you crucified, God's made him the Lord. He's made him the Messiah. Some of you were there. Some of you may have accused him. Some of you didn't rise up to defend him. Some of you walked away. Now God's made him Lord and Messiah. And a hush fell over the crowd. In verse 37 says that Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? What can we do about it now? Yes, we remember Jesus. We know what we've done. We know what we've been a party to. But it's too late now, isn't it? What can we do about it? And Peter replied, Attend church regularly. No, I made that up. If you didn't laugh, you need to go read your Bible. This is opening day. And there's a dynamic, there's an energy, there's an enthusiasm in the air. There's this sense of, okay, I know this stuff now, what am I going to do about it? I've got to do something now that I know this. Quite frankly, many of us have lost that. Because here's how we think. I need to go to church. right? I haven't been to Church in a long time. I need to get back to church. Yeah, I need to find myself a church. I need to get my family back into. Yeah. Let me tell you something. On opening day, those words wouldn't have made any sense at all. They would, they would not have known what you were even saying. Because the church was a gathering of people. It, it, was a, it was a growing, multiplying assembly of people. It wasn't a place you went to. It was a message and a mission about a man that you took with you everywhere you went. Well, here's what Peter says to them in verse 38, Acts 2.38. Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. And be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then he makes a promise. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on in, in verse 39. And, and this is so cool. If you haven't been paying attention, you've got to tune back in. This promise is to you and to your children and even to the Gentiles. All who have been called by the Lord our God. Hey folks, the Gentiles... 
That's you and me. That's you and me and our children and our grandchildren and our parents and our grandparents who embraced Christianity. This is, this is Peter saying, hey, this isn't just a Jew thing. This isn't a Jerusalem thing. It's not an us thing. This message, this momentum, this idea, all the supernatural power we're experiencing, this whole thing is for us and for our children, for all who will come after us. This is a movement that's going to reach beyond our lifetime. Listen, right now, you're laying some foundations that are going to affect the lives of people in your family, some of whom haven't even been born yet. This week, I was privileged to, to attend two funerals for dear Christian ladies for Vicky's Aunt Jean Armstrong and Joanne Seagraves yesterday. And the legacy and the heritage of those two Christian women. And to see that, that they believed and their children believed and their grandchildren believed. And, and now the grandchildren have children and they will be raised to know the Lord. Peter's saying it's for us. It's for our children, our children's children, and even those who are far off. God's calling them near. And even if this generation dies, the momentum is going to continue. Even if this generation dies, the church will continue to thrive. This generation may die, but this is an event that's going to touch people who haven't even been born yet in places where they have not even yet heard the story. And then they had... The first altar call. Did you grow up in a church that had altar calls? I did. You sang a hymn at the end. There's always something stirring, right? Like, just as I am. or Softly and tenderly. Man, I wanted to get saved every time I heard that one. Come home. Come home, ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly. Jesus is calling, calling. Oh, sinner. Come home. And I just oh, I want to go down front, but I'm already saved. Well, they didn't sing a hymn at the first altar call. They didn't have to because there was so much energy and so much passion and so much conviction. Here's how the crowd responded. It's in verse 41. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. Do you know how long it would take to baptize 3,000 people? I mean, for days and days, the apostles were in the Jordan River. Any other body of water they could find baptizing people as they turned from their sins. Can you imagine the talk and the buzz? I mean, Jerusalem was a fair-sized city. I mean, it wasn't a huge metropolis. Most scholars think it was between maybe 80,000 and 120,000. So you're talking about 2, 2.5% of the population. But can you imagine what a stir that created? Can you imagine in our community, if 100 people got saved and baptized today in this church, and people would be talking about it everywhere. From the very beginning of the church, big things have happened. Because it's a big message. It's a big momentum. It's a big event. 
And I know some people don't like big churches. And that's okay, fine. But you wouldn't have liked opening day. You may not enjoy heaven either, but that's a sermon for a different day. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we'll be divided up into life groups in heaven. I don't know. But the point is, opening day for the local church was this amazing, dynamic, powerful thing. And thousands of people embraced the message. Thousands of people said, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He was crucified by Rome. He rose from the dead. And we believe that Peter and his friends are eyewitnesses of this. And now we turn from our sin. And we want to be baptized and included in this brand new gathering of people. And 2,000 years later, here we are. Do you know what it is that connects us? with every other Christian on the face of the earth. I mean, whatever flavor, whatever brand, Protestant, Catholic, Baptist, Brethren, Church of Christ, I don't care what, you, what it is. The, the one common denominator is not the way we worship, right? It, it's not our traditions or our customs. It's not the way we take communion. The common thing that we have with every single believer who lives on this earth and whoever has lived or ever will live is that we believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that He died on the cross for our sins and He rose from the dead. Opening day was not about a location. There was no location. It wasn't about church for church people because there, was, there, there weren't any church people. They didn't know what that was. It wasn't about tradition or style or a, or a way of doing anything because there was none of that. But there was an energy, a dynamic, there was a momentum, there was movement, and the world was never, ever the same again. And when we gather in Jesus' name, we're part of that same energy, that same dynamic, that same movement that started on opening day. That's why we cheer when somebody gets baptized. And I know some people don't like it. Well, get over yourself in Christian love. But that's why we cheer, because we get that. Because we understand that we're connected to the message, to the mission that Jesus started. And someone's baptism is them saying, I'm turning away from this life, and now I choose Christ, and I choose to live for Him, and I choose to connect myself to that message and that mission. And that's exciting. That's why we understand that when we meet in our groups, that we're the church, just the same as if we meet in this room. When we come together to serve others outside these walls, we're the church. Every time you work in the nursery so that a, a young mother can come in here and worship 
and hear, about, hear the message about Jesus, you are being the church. Every time you volunteer in New Hope for Kids or, or student ministry, you're the church. Every time you give a guest a warm greeting or pour somebody a cup of coffee or, or clean up after a funeral dinner, you are the church. There have always been, there always will be people who get that, who understand that, who understand that church is not a location, it's not a style, it's not an approach, but it's a gathering of people, an assembly of people around a simple idea that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that He died on the cross for our sins, and that He rose from the dead on the third day, and that that message is for the entire world. My prayer is that New Hope will always be in the center of what God is doing in our community and in our world. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.